Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, Scott and I are going to talk about signs of possible toxicity in your church. And Scott, we have recently seen a lot of high-profile examples of toxic church culture, and I know you keep having conversations with people who are curious to know how to identify toxic church culture in their own setting, so we thought it would be useful for us to have a few conversations about how to identify these signs. So you sent me a list of things you wanted to talk about, and the first was this idea of secrecy in churches. So let's talk about that. Well, the number of these stories that are coming our way, and they've decreased in number because for when the book came out, just people just started opening up our mailbox and jamming letters in. And so yeah. uh, Laura, my daughter, and I, and Chris in some ways, were getting all these letters. And one of the things that we noticed right away was um, with toxic leaders, there is a really uh, intense form of secrecy that develops. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a culture that is perceived by, let's say, the insiders as privileged um, information that they get to know of what's going on. Other people don't know this. We don't tell people this. There is a sense in which they're protecting other people or, you know, they think they are. Um, there is a sense in which um, only people who have gifts and leadership and power are the mm -hmm. ones who are to know these things and talk about these things. They share these things only with the innermost uh, people. They hide them from others in some ways that are deceitful and even um, lying. Um, and as a result, there develops a culture of secrecy and protection of the leaders that these are things we know that no one else is supposed to know. Yeah. Now, look, all of us are involved in organizations where there are some things that are being talked about that are not yet to go public. So there's something important about this in all forms of leadership, I'd imagine, in churches. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're talking about whether we should move the Sunday service from 10 o'clock to 10.30. Okay. Now, this is, I think our church begins at 10 o'clock. So I'm not talking about our church at all. <laughs> I mean, no, there's been no conversation like this at all. At least it hasn't come my way. And I don't think that's going to happen. But at any rate, or you say, now we're going to talk about uh, whether we should have two services. Mm -hmm. Or we're going to talk about uh, whether we should change the worship leader, whether we should change the sign on the building, whether we should change the name of the church. These kinds of conversations will usually start with one or two or three people. And just to avoid creating all kinds of furor and chaos and questions, and problems, they, they pretty much keep it to themselves. So I think you would say, I agree with you, there are things that need to be kept secret. But there is also a, a culture of secrecy about things that are inappropriate, 
uh, that are dangerous to the life of the church uh, that people protect and they protect leaders. And for instance, we know of churches where pastors have been accused of financial misdealing. We know churches where there are pastors who've been accused of sexual misconduct. Uh, We know there are churches where pastors have marital problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know there are churches that are dealing with potentially explosive abuse accusations, spiritual abuse, psychological, emotional abuse. And they're trying to keep this totally secret so that no one can find out about it and it doesn't damage the reputation of the church or hurt the persons involved. And there, at that point, now you're starting to protect things that are wrong and you're hiding things from other people, you're being deceitful. And we found that in the churches that are most toxic, there is a secrecy culture And in churches that are beginning to be toxic, there forms a secrecy culture. So I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's hard. I think it's, I I have seen both sides of the equation. And I was having a conversation recently with a group of women about what sorts of things ought to disqualify a pastor from leadership. Um, And at what point you make those issues public. Um, certain things I feel pretty confident that I know the answer to that question. Others are more gray areas. Um, but at what point does a congregation need to know and what, what role does a congregation have, um, in making some of these decisions? And I think part of the problem that I, that I wonder is this strong line of demarcation between clergy and congregation, So where you have a very hierarchical model where the clergy is held at a a certain level of esteem and separation, um, the congregation no longer feels like they're part of those conversations. And um, sometimes they really need to be. I think there are moments where the congregation needs to be involved in conversations. And you listed a few examples, other ones that I've heard of, um, a situation of domestic abuse by a pastor. Does a congregation need to know that? Um, is that a situation of disqualification for a leader? Um, I would say also porn addiction is another thing, thing I've seen come up in a few conversations online about um, a pastor, if a pastor is regularly accessing porn, Um, is that a disqualifier and at what point does a congregation need to know some of these issues are issues of, um, I, I think we have a tendency to talk about them as personal sin, but for a leader, I think there are spillover effects in how they conduct themselves um, in the case of domestic abuse, how they interact with their staff people, how they interact um, when they're not getting their way. Um, And with porn addiction, if it's a male pastor interacting with female congregants, I would think there would be some some effects of that that come up. Um, and so when does a congregation need to be involved in that conversation? When, when should some of those things for confidentiality be kept close? Um, 
So that's where it's hard. It's hard to know, but I think that what, what you're describing is a situation that's very hierarchical where a pastor has collected around themselves an inner circle of people, um, where these things are held very closely and the people in the inner circle sort of have to prove their loyalty by protecting secrets, um, that probably a congregation should have access to because they're eliminated from the conversation. Well, okay. Um, I want to, uh, play with this word hierarchical. Uh, the more congregational the church, the more, the less secrecy there should be. Right. Uh, because in a congregational church, people believe that the spirit is distributed throughout the church in some level, and everybody should be, it's sort of like American democracy represent, you know, it's not even representative. It's a radical democracy where everybody has a vote. Right. And the, the most recent member has the same power in voting as the pastor. Okay. Or the, or the oldest member in a hierarchical model. There is a little bit more top down. Well, there is more top down. And in those churches, uh, I think that there would probably be secrecy kept to a minimum because of the hierarchy, the way it works. So, for instance, let's say our bishop, Todd Hunter, my bishop, knows something about another church and he calls me in to consult he and I may be the only two or one other person who knows this. And at that point, that, that would not need to be congregational in um, an Episcopal type uh, church structure. So the more congregational, the less secrecy. But what we've seen is that it's in these congregational churches where this secrecy culture starts to right. develop more. Right. Now, I'm not saying that the Episcopal or, you know, and I'm talking here that they have bishops. So the Methodist church, the Anglican church, the Mm -hmm. Catholic church, you know, churches, Lutherans have the same thing. Christian reform have similar thing where there is a little bit more of a hierarchy. Yeah. Um, All of those can, can have these kinds of secrecy things develop, but it is really strange when it is a congregational church and there's, there's only, 12 people who know what's going on. So right. I, I heard things from innermost circle people at Willow Creek. I've heard these things at Harvest Bible Fellowship or mm-hmm. whatever it was called, Harvest Bible Chapel. I've heard these things in other churches, in Baptist churches, where only a few people on the inside actually knew, but they did know. And they kept it to themselves. Right, And they knew that was their job or they were going to lose their job in that church if they began to talk. So I would say, um, let's see, a sign of toxicity is a clear secrecy culture. And here's what I would say in addition to that. The vast majority, and maybe put the number at 95% plus, of people in the church will not know about the secrecy culture. I mean, they might know, let's say you're calling a new pastor in a congregational church and only the search committee actually knows the names and Mm -hmm. that's a secret. And those people are told, keep this to secret. You might ruin someone else's job at another church, you know, so you can't talk. All right. That I'm not talking about that. We're talking about, uh, there are some things that are going to be kept secret. There are other things that the 
inner circle knows and we need to be really careful about. Most mm-hmm. people are not going to know and they're going to assume everything is hunky-dory, even right. when it's not. Right. Yeah, it's so fascinating how this operates. And let's talk about um, some of the unspoken or secret rules of the inner circle, how this actually functions and the role of loyalty in the inner circle. Well, um, you know that uh, because of our communications, you know that I just wrote a post by the chapter, the address that C.S. Lewis gave to students at King's College, London in 1944. I mean, I was thinking this is right during the war. And I happen to be reading right now the letters and papers of George Orwell. And he, and it's in 1944 that he's he's talking about the stuff that he was right or it's that's the stuff from 1944 so i thought oh man this is stuff when orwell is talking too and cs lewis talks about the inner ring mm. and he, here's what lewis was concerned about he was telling these young graduates of king's college that you are going to have a desire to be in the inner ring of some organization and that desire can lead to corruption because the inner ring can get corrupted and and that and that desire he thinks i don't know exactly how he said it but he said something like this uh that the majority uh of humans uh and he was probably talking about men going into the workplace okay they are driven by this desire to be on the inner circle. Right. So I remember when I was first a professor, I mean, first got my PhD. I wanted to get to know the people that I thought mattered in New Testament studies, you know? And a lot of them are pretty well known today. At that time, they were coming alive like, E.P. Sanders, and I knew Jimmy Dunn, and I always wanted to meet Martin Hangel, but I, I don't think I ever even saw Martin Hangel, and um, Graham Stanton, who was my examiner for my thesis, and uh, people like this, and you know, and then along came N.T. Wright, and I actually scheduled a, a, a breakfast or coffee with Tom Wright, and I saw him walking toward me and i i'm sure he didn't know who i was but he knew he had a coffee at this time and i was afraid to to tell him who i was and i just walked <laughs> by him hoping hoping that i i wouldn't have to sit down and meet meet him i was kind of intimidated so but we wanted to be on i wanted to be in that inner circle and over time i realized that that you know that's not going to take you probably anywhere you you think it is you know getting a phd Getting a PhD from a uh, highly regarded school, you know, level A, Ivy League school, Oxford, Cambridge, Trinity College, Tubingen, a Trinity College, uh, Dublin, Tubingen, you know, let's say University of some other place. And, and you wanted to be in that inner, that puts you in the inner circle. And in some ways it does. It gives you your opportunities. But the inner circle the inner circle has the capacity to distort people. And then um, because you want to main, you, you feel like you're privileged, you feel like you have power, 
you feel I probably the biggest thing you feel is status and honor that you are in the inner circle of the seminar on Hellenistic Judaism, as if <laughs> as if the world cares. And you are on the inner circle because you are uh, you meet on Tuesday morning at SPL and you decide who's going to give papers the next year, mm-hmm. you know. And um, uh, when I was a young scholar, I tried to get into the Matthew seminar. I could not penetrate the inner circle or be given a chance to give a paper. And it was very disappointing because i that's what I wanted to do. And they even had a, they had sessions where there were some people who got to sit at the inner table and others had to sit in chairs around the, the table. It was, <laughs> it was really noticeable. And uh, that, when you're in the inner circle, one of the things that you have to maintain is loyalty. Right. And loyalty is going to be felt as I, there's somebody in power or there's some bodies in power and they all have the same mindset. They all are, let's say, old perspective, Reformation perspective on Paul. And if I say I really like Jimmy Dunn, or I really like uh, Douglas Campbell, then I may be seen as polluted. Mm. And so I may have to double down in my loyalty and, and show them that I I learned something from Campbell, but I really disagree with what he's doing. Or I learned something <laughs> from Jimmy Dunn, but I think he's totally wrong on works of the law. And so there, there is that loyalty that you have to have to profess. And loyalty culture is toxic because in a loyalty culture, doing the right thing at the right time is unapproved right. or potentially dangerous because you could get unapproved. And this is, uh, this is something I think um, if, you're, if you are being interviewed by a church an organization, I think you need to ask questions about loyalty. For instance, I I think it's fair for an organization to say, we expect you to be loyal to our organization, that you won't be publicly criticizing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's fair. Um, Honesty is is accepted and you can talk to us. But I also think that, um, that you are not to be, let's say I'm a professor, you're not to be trying to moonlight at four other institutions uh, so you can climb your way out and get to a better position. Uh, so I, I would say loyalty is there's, there's a sense in which we, we need to have the, the decency and respect of the organization where we work. Uh, and right now this is really big in professional golf. I don't know if you know about the PGA and then there's this, this tour out of Saudi Arabia and they, uh-huh. it's pronounced, it's, it's called live L-I-V, but it's actually 54 in Roman numerals, which oh, is a really silly thing. It's not working <laughs> at the public level. But, but players who have jumped out of the PGA and gone to the live tour are now, there's a new proposal that they not be able to play in the majors. And so there's a there, the PGA players think that this is disloyal to the organization that got them there. There's something about this loyalty. But if the if the pastors if you learn that the pastor 
or the professor or the president, however, wherever you work, uh, the CEO, whatever, if that person says, if you hear it, you can never disagree with this person. Now we've heard this. Uh, we've heard this recently about about a pastor and and someone on the inner circle, the inner ring actually told another person who was not in the inner ring, we don't ever ask questions of the pastor. Yeah, that's dangerous. That's so dangerous. That, that sort of, uh, that's a sign of toxicity, that level of loyalty. Respect, yeah. I totally agree with that. But, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to me as a professor, students will say, is, is, you know, I've had this question maybe 50 times since I've been at Northern in 10 years. Is it okay in my paper if I disagree with you? And I always say, of course, I love to have disagreement because that's what we do in this field. But if a professor said, well, you could disagree with me, but don't write that up in the paper. Well, then that's not a teacher. That's right. an indoctrinator. Right. And, and you want to, I mean, if you are testing out your ideas and you think your professor is wrong, you should have enough respect to say, you know, I, I like about what you're doing here, but I, I think this area is wrong and I want to try to write it up. I want interaction from you. Yeah, and that's so good. So. That's so good. So here's what I'm hearing you say so far, just to sum up where, we're, where we've been. This inner circle idea, some of this is natural in terms of decision making for an organization. Some of this happens. Where it becomes toxic is where people begin to associate it with maneuvering for power and there becomes a strong separation where the outside organization, the other members of the organization, are kept out of information that they probably should have access to. That's where it becomes potentially dangerous. When large decisions are made by a few people and that inner circle becomes toxic when there is when dissent is no longer allowed. And I, I've seen this um in congregations and organizations like part of love i think is um it, it, when you think about a family context is to part of love is saying i think you're wrong yeah. it's it's not and it's it's out of respect and and care but it's saying i do not think that the trajectory you are on is safe or healthy or helpful. And if we can't say that, we're in dangerous territory. That's when it starts to bleed into that toxic zone when people who are committed to the organization no longer have a voice or an opportunity to voice concerns, critiques, or dissent. Um, yeah. As leaders, yeah. we should welcome that and say, that makes us stronger. And maybe I haven't explained myself very well, or maybe you have an idea that I need to benefit from. Let's slow down. Let's create space for that conversation to happen, as opposed to this is the direction we're headed. Everybody fall in line. You know, yeah, I, I think I should interview you about this. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, I was just talking to a leader about a church where uh, the elder board has adopted a principle. Now you probably know about this. I, this is in the business world, this happens. And the, the principle is that, that when we have a vote, the majority wins and we announce it as a consensus unanimous yeah. decision. 
Yeah. Okay. That is a power play that everybody agrees when they don't. So it's deceitful and it's a power play because if everybody on the elder board or the deacon board or in our church, the vestry board agrees, well, then who am I? They know all the stuff and we don't. When that is misrepresenting, that's a power play that is an unhealthy cultural dynamic at work in that church. Hmm. So I don't know how we got to that. But I I agree with you that dissent should be permissible and it should be respectful. Mm -hmm. And the persons who, in a sense, lose should be respectful of the majority without capitulating or being coerced to capitulate. You know, I've heard this so many times over the years in, in elder boards is there was disagreement, but the pastor was so vehement about it that either you capitulated or you got kicked off. Right. So that's not, that's not healthy at all. That's, that's pretty textbook toxicity. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One of the other persistent issues we've seen in many of these high-profile cases of toxic church culture is a lack of safe reporting mechanisms. Uh, Could you describe for our listeners the impact that it has when a church or another Christian organization does not have safe reporting mechanisms? Why does this matter so much? Yeah. Okay. So you hear, I hear this story all the time. The recent one with Rick Warren came up. I don't know if you heard about this, but mm-hmm. the, you hear about it all the time is that there is a concern. We're going to investigate. There's a concern about the pastor. There's a concern about the worship leader. There is a concern about the evangelism director. There is a concern about this missionary. We're going to do the investigation. We're going to do the investigation ourselves because we alone know. And the deacon board is going to or the elder board is going to investigate the pastor. And the story comes up clean. Okay. Now, let's just say that you are a person where you absolutely know that that pastor did something coercive or even sexually abusive. You'll never come forward again in your life in that situation because you know that it's it's a rigged system. All right, so here, here's the, this is the story back to Willow Creek. The Bill Hybels announced in the first month after these reports came out in the Chicago Tribune that the church did an independent investigation and they found no problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, when they did hire an independent investigation, it the reports by the accusers, the reporters, whatever you want to call them, those who had allegations, came out to be credible. This is the principle that we have to learn, is that churches, church leaders cannot investigate themselves. We need to develop in all churches um, safe mechanisms where a person can come forward and know that their name will not be used. Now, if if you're the one who was sexually harassed and the pastor knows that the pastor harassed you and you come forward with your story, the pastor knows you've reported, but that pastor's responsibility, if they retaliate, that is against law. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a crime to retaliate yeah. in a workplace for reporting. All right. So 
we need to develop safe mechanisms. And that would be, there needs to be a level of anonymity and trust in the person they report to. And then they need to have protection until that person decides they want to become known or until the agreement of the contract is. So in other words, if you if someone reports and they say, now look, you can be anonymous until this story uh, reaches its resolution with the investigation, at which point your name may very well be known. You're entering the process knowing that. Now, some of them are going to say, you never have to make yourself known. And, and that's a part of the process. So we need to develop safe mechanisms so that people can report in safety, know that they will be protected, and know that there will not be retaliation. And it needs to be independent enough that the principal parties who are, let's say, under investigation cannot manipulate the situation and communicate with the situation, et cetera. So um, when those when those things don't happen, Laura, people are not safe and they're afraid to come forward. And this is why for so many years, so many women who have been abused and wounded in churches are unwilling to come forward because they know what's going to happen to them. Right. And and here's a principle from Diane Langberg is that when you when you have let's say lodged an allegation against a leader when the church finds out and begins to respond to the reporter the uh, the person who makes allegations the church responds more often wounds the victim more than the original wounds uh, so that it's doubly dangerous to report yeah unless there, was, there can be go ahead there was a video that came out i don't know maybe last month um where a pastor was as part of the service was confessing um infidelity i think was what he was framing it as or adultery in his past and was confessing this to his congregation oh and yes do you remember this and then the the woman that was the victim stood up and said basically stopped the you know conversation and said i would it was me and i was 16 or you know i don't remember yeah. the specifics yeah, but she a, had been a, she had been a child when this yeah. happened yeah, it wasn't so the, an, this, it wasn't adultery it no. was it was a sexual crime right and yeah. Because it was captured on video, and to be honest, I couldn't watch the video. I read a description of it. Um, But what happened was there was this crowd of people that surrounded the pastor. So as this was all taking place, like kind of affirming him, like, oh, my goodness, we're so glad you came forward. We forgive you. And this woman was just standing by herself. Um, And I think that's just paints the picture, right? This, This response that is so typical. Um, my wife, you know, know, Chris is is a psychologist and, and she has watched these situations for the last three years as we've been involved in this so often. And in the sense that people are reporting to us, her calculation is about 90% of a congregation defends the pastor. Now, I think a lot of them defend it by not speaking up. So in other words, they're sort of complicit in the defense 
rather than explicit. Mm-hmm. And they their silence speaks words, uh, deep words of complicity and defense of the pastor rather than speaking up for the, the victims. And so it is, um, I, I saw, I, I did not watch that video. Chris was the one who told me about this one, that she had seen it. And I saw a little bit of it and it was just unbelievable yeah. what happened, but how the narrative was being framed from the platform and how the people came and surrounded the pastor. After hearing that this was when she was a, a minor. Right. On, Shocking. Plus, it's, you know, it's, it's another level. It's a pastor. It's a pastor, yeah. I just heard a story from a woman who told us that her pastor had an affair, and she reported it. And they just completely defended the pastor and said, well, you know, boys will be boys. And um, so... It was was terrible. It's terrible. So this is to underscore the importance of having well-known safe reporting mechanisms um, that protect reporters of abuse um, and and open it up to investigation um, to not uh, enable a shroud of secrecy to descend over the process. I think that's important to clarify. Um, another sign of secrecy in toxic church cultures and other Christian organizations is the mysterious departure of staff people from the workplace. Um, tell us a bit about how this typically plays out and what people should pay attention to in their church or other Christian workplace. And one of the things I've started telling people is when you start to hear, when you start to see people leaving suddenly and there's a mysterious story that's supplied or if the stories all start to sound the same oh they're moving on to bigger and better things um but it's you know general and non-specific it's time to start paying attention um so what can you tell us about this about the departure of people without a lot of information given for their departure um, I, I would tell people, first of all, to inquire with the human resources or with the inner circles of power and structure if there are NDAs being signed. I would ask that question uh, because I think NDAs, <clears throat> when they mean uh, non, uh, they call them non-disclosures, but what they're actually is silence will yeah. we'll give you a big severance and keep, you keep your mouth shut. So they're by, it, it's sort of uh, it's bribery, uh, and it's not it's not worthy of Christian institutions. I and I'm not saying there's never a a, a reasonable NDA, uh, but it should never be to cover up um, abuse or misconduct or power abuse of any sort. Okay, so that's one thing, and and I I'm very suspicious of people who are leaving in churches today who uh, who have the story that the church tells, not the person themselves, that the pastor tells from the platform or someone from the platform that they've been called to another ministry. They're, the Lord has led them out of our church and we want to pray for them and bless them. I know this happens and it's, and it's accurate, but by and large, I, I'm right now very suspicious of that kind of language. 
so I, I would pay attention to that kind of language. And um, silent departures concern me. Um, but what I have found in most settings, someone knows. I don't mean the human resources and the people in power, but they've told other people, and those people become complicit in, let's say, workplace abuse by not speaking up. And I, I would encourage them to find a way to speak up and know that they, they're going to risk themselves. But um, if you're in an institution and you see what you think are too many people leaving at the same time, rather than bellyache about it with one or two of your friends at the workplace, rather than become a gossip about it, go talk to the person who left and then talk to the people who got rid of them and find out what's really, find out what the story is. And I know you're all of a sudden you're, you're triangulating a relationship and you're in the middle of something you probably don't want to be involved in. That's going to, that's risking your position, but you need to find people who have sufficient strength in the organization to say, we can't accept this. So let's say you're an elder board, a deacon board, a board of trustees at a business, whatever they call them, you know, those inner, inner boards, the inner ring boards. And you notice that a lot of people are leaving and it just seems like too much turnover. Start asking questions. Mm -hmm. But don't don't talk to the person who, in that sense, was the one who probably got rid of them, the firer, whatever you want to call them. Talk to the people and find out why they left. Uh, conduct exit interviews that are honest and recorded, you know, and then typed out. And uh, because that those kinds of a lot of people leaving is either a toxic environment a dysfunctional environment maybe just bad leadership or it's a, a loyalty culture at such a level that the only people who are tolerated are people who totally fall in line and that's not that's not acceptable in a world of diverse people now if, if there's only three people working at the place you know, you can't have someone fighting everything that's going along. Um, so that's that, that's a mistake in hiring. But then I think the the uh, the elders or, or the people need to be examining the hiring process. If people come in who seem to be quite qualified and then all of a sudden they're all leaving, then you need to say, why? Uh, what are we doing in the hiring process that we seem to be hiring good people who don't fit? What? What is it about our place that people don't fit into? What's going on? So, um, these are good, really good questions, and I, I think this also goes back to that original point about the difference between the inner circle and the larger congregation or the larger community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that like a congregational meeting, you know, would be an appropriate place for someone to say, hey, we've seen a stream of really qualified people leave. 
And we're getting this mysterious description, uh, you know, from the leadership about why they've left. But we want to know more of that story because I think sometimes it can be really dangerous for other staff people um, who may, who probably know more about the real situation to ask questions because that puts a target on their back. It really can. Um, so what is a safe space, again, for asking those questions? That is a, that's a really good question, Laura. What, what is a safe? I, I, I wouldn't have thought of it quite the way you said it, that some of the staff people are more vulnerable than a, a congregational person. You know, I, I I'm involved in a, a situation uh, for a while we were anyway um in talking in advising a church where people in the church were asking questions but they were then being uh, degraded by others so that they ended up leaving so the the disaffected the people who had questions were kind of pushed off the table or or they right. weren't given any more responsibilities in the church and they thought well we'll, we'll move on so uh but Congregation, congregation. The, let's say the church members, in many ways, are safer than staff members to raise questions. Yes. Do you think that's yes. right? Oh, a hundred percent. And I'm speaking out of my own personal experience where I saw this play out, and I think that um, a lot of staff people choose silence for the sake of safety, and I yeah. understand that it's unfortunate. Um, but in that sense, I think that church members can have the safety and also the power of asking really careful questions. Um, and I would just add that church members have a responsibility to stay engaged. Um, I think there has, in, in large churches especially, there is a tendency to um, give over responsibility and commitment yeah, to yeah. the staff and the leadership. Um, Good point. And, and it creates this separation then where the church's decisions are being made. It's not as messy. It's much um, more efficient. But the congregational members who are affected by these things are cut out of the equation. And yeah, yeah that, can, that can be toxic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any other closing thoughts about secrecy and the life yeah. of Christian organizations and the churches? Inner ring. Yeah. Yeah, that inner ring. I think we need to become, you know, there's so many things about organizations that our political people do not see. And you need people in your organization, your church, your school, your business who have perception of the social dynamics that are occurring. And you know, I've been around people who are profoundly perceptive of social dynamics. And I've been around other people who are leaders in churches who are profoundly unaware. And mm -hmm. leaders need to have some savvy about the social psychology and social dynamic of churches. So we need uh, more alert awareness, but we also need trust and safety for people to be able to make some observations in ways that won't damage their reputation and won't damage their opportunities of service or their income and their employment. And we are in a stage in the church, I think right now, Laura, where uh, the cultures that we've been forming over time have not been amenable to these, these sorts of uh, conversations. 
and the the backside of it is coming back to punish us. Yes. So. Well, that's well, good. I think that's good helpful. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so helpful to th- think about. And I think we'll come back to this conversation. We've got a few other things we've got to talk about. Um, just framing signs of toxicity, toxicity in your church. Because I think this is something a lot of people have questions about. What do I look for? What are possible solutions? So we'll circle back to this. But in the meantime, we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much.